Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome to a new episode of Genuine Humans podcast, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Wendy. Wendy, how's your week going? Really well, although I've definitely turned into that Brit who moans about it being cold, and then as soon as the sun comes out and it gets above 20 degrees, I'm I'm melting. But great, really enjoying the sunshine. Actually, I, I managed to enjoy some sunshine as well. I had a an afternoon off and went to the Taste of London Festival, and it was just fantastic, just going around and eating lovely food and feeling a bit more normal. So yeah, it's it's been a good week. Was there a cheese barge? There wasn't a cheese barge this time, but there was there was definitely a lot of cheese. <laughs> And we're actually joined today by Mark Earls, who I consider a bit of marketing and advertising royalty, as he's had an illustrious career in some of the largest and most influential communication companies. Plus, he's a fellow of the Marketing Society and the RSA, but he's more known as the author of several books, which our listeners will be aware of, uh, including, I'm hoping that I've got this right, Mark, but it's Heard, Welcome to the Creative Age, Copy, 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 and more recently, creative superpowers. So a big warm welcome to Mark Earls. Hi, Dee. How are you doing? Very, very good. Now, Mark, one of my favorite reviews of your book uh, refers to you as like Malcolm Gladwell on speed. But before we talk about the impact of your books, can we go a bit further back? How did you actually get into marketing and advertising in the first place? Well, it starts a long way back, um, around the time the wheel was invented, and I'd fallen out, of, <laughs> fallen out at the end of the university course and didn't, uh, for some reason, didn't end up doing the doctorate I was planning and uh, was at a loose end. And my mate Jamie, who was my drinking buddy through my final year, had got a placement at Publicis or someone like that, a, a graduate trainee job, and he hated it. And he really hated it. I hate this job. I hate this industry. It's just so superficial and just, bleh. I'm going off to be an investment banker, but I think advertising would suit you, which I don't know what it says about <laughs> me and how he thinks about me, but um, that's how it started. And I wrote, you know, I wrote 60 odd letters to different agencies and eventually, and, and marketing uh, departments and eventually got a job uh, at Grey of all places. Fantastic. And so when you got there, did it feel superficial? No, it felt quite serious. I really liked it. I was um, I was mentored by two people, Jamie Dow and uh, the wonderful Leslie Walsh, um, who were the basically the planning department, and they just looked after me and encouraged me to use my um, brain to solve the problems that the agency was charged with its clients. So that's how I just found myself doing that stuff, and uh, it was really quite quite interesting. Although my flatmate at the time, Al, would tell you that I was over obsessed by the technicalities of toothbrushes and toothpaste and toothbrushing because I was working on the, the uh, Beecham's toothpaste at the time but yeah it was fun. So of course for all of us our journeys start even further back than that so so long before uni and I'm interested in exploring how how we are as kids shapes where we end up as adults so what were you like as a kid? Uh, I was the same kind of mix that I am now so I was quite bookish and geeky um my mother was a language teacher and I was the eldest of three and so I was often encouraged to go off and just read a book and shut up or 
play with your Lego or something, just, you know, let, let go on. And she was, you know, she was a working mother as well. So I was that that kind of kid and quite quiet and, and thoughtful and my imagination just went off, which is why I've never actually found psychotropic drugs of any sort, any use at all, because it's all going on there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Full bore imagination. And uh, I think that's an important part of how I have got to do what I've got to do. And the other side of me was a bit of a performer. There's one family photograph which I treasure, which is um, all of us, the three of us, coming down a slide and me at the bottom doing basically showtime. Ta-da! My hands outstretched, <laughs> arms outstretched and, you know, ready for the audience applause. That's me as well. Uh, that, that was me then and it's me now. Still you now. And, and when you were growing up, what did you want to be? Very good question. I wanted to be a vet at one point. Just I've always loved animals, particularly dogs. Grew up with dogs and and fish. Uh, I've always been obsessed by fish and fishy things, um, so I had fish as well. Um, so that was one bit of me. There's another bit of me wanted to be a teacher. You always sort of want to be or not be what your parents do. My mum was a language teacher, a translator, and my dad had been working in sales, and and then we started working at Middlesex Business School as as it is now, teaching. So I wanted to be a teacher, and actually that sort of correlates with one of my one of my great role models in life was my mother's brother who was an Oxford Don who'd come from a working class background and worked his way up to be dean of a uni- of University College Oxford so he and I love that sort of magical world as I think it's captured very well in the in the um, Lyra books about Oxford that magic so I that that's appealed to me but finally and this is the thing that we might come back to later is music Oh. I sang music and I played music and played in bands and in orchestras and you know I just and I sang all the time and there's always music going on in my family and I sang in two different church choirs and all of that stuff so I music is my my it was my other thing I wanted to be a musician somehow and of course my teenage self said it wanted to be a quite a serious musician and then quite a loud three-chord musician and then just a musician but um I didn't take that course I think that um, Tamara and I could probably both identify with that a little bit. Absolutely. We could very easily sidetrack and just talk about this singing. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> now we're allowed to do it. <laughs> of course we are. <laughs> it makes such a difference, actually, I because I, uh, I sing in a, a like a pop choir mm. and we've been singing on Zoom all through the pandemic and we managed to sort of catch up at the weekend and uh, actually there were sort of about 30 of us in a, in a garden just singing together and it was oh. the most wonderful uplifting thing and presumably you haven't been able to have you performed at all no, not over at all, the last not at all. in fact we haven't been able to rehearse because until recently you weren't allowed six six people from different households in in an enclosed space without masks and you know there are times when we want to just not just mask but bind and gag the sax player because he's <laughs> excited um but uh no we've actually got a first gig at someone's party in the middle of august so that week before the weekend before is the, we have to have a whole day of rehearsal so we can just remember the songs that we as aging gents that we're liable to forget so yeah i'm really excited about that that's going to be a real change that's our freedom day brilliant and have you had a worst job do you think you don't have to name names oh, but any funny stories i think i was intergalactic, <laughs> intergalactic strategic fire brigade when i was at ogilvy and it was the worst so i basically anytime something went wrong with anything to do with strategy or branding or anything around the world with any of the ogilvy agencies i was the one who got shoved on a plane to go and do that 
And it was always a place where two weeks before we'd had a conversation with the local team and they said, no, everything's fine, everything's cool, our client's really happy. And then suddenly business is up for pitch. So that was the worst thing. Mm-hmm. I had also had a theological divergence with them. They were obsessed with one-to-one communication. Uh, if, you think, mm-hmm. if you think back, this is the, the early part of um, this century. And they're obsessed with one-to-one communication and efficiency rather than impact. And I wish mm-hmm. I wish now that I could not have done that job. Yeah, it sounds pretty awful. You talked earlier about writing many letters mm-hmm. to agencies to get that first foot in the door. Where do you think that passion and tenacity stems from? Our stubbornness from my mum. Mum was, <laughs> was stubborn as anything. And just, you know, she was an amazing woman from, again, a working class background and got a double first in languages and, and then uh, became a translator and then retrained as a teacher and then end up running the the largest of those uh, I don't know if you remember back in the in the 70s in the UK we had this language lab thing the technology for learning languages through recordings she was that ran one of the largest uh, schools running that so wow. she's amazing amazing yeah and at the same time she ran a church choir and she kept the whole family going and extended family as well and so on and so on and she then also was an examiner for um, two different languages for three different boards so she's extraordinary just extraordinary woman and she just you go well you just get to go through it you write a list and you go through it you work through it work through it work through it it doesn't mean I'm very organized it just means I'm stubborn I go right there's still four things on my list I've got to get done if you need something doing ask a busy woman uh, totally yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. and you mentioned your mom and previously you mentioned your uncle as well and thinking about some of the people that you've worked with over the years mm. which other genuine humans have influenced you in your career I think I think one of the things that I, I like this idea about influence and, and exploring it because because mm-hmm. the way you phrase that question is un, is unlike how most people phrase it, which is what influence gets done to me, mm-hmm. done to me that's changed me. I think the mutual is often both mute influence is often more mutual yeah. than it is passive, if you like, and also we also take stuff from people that they perhaps didn't realize we did. That's how influence spreads. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how ideas and behaviors and values spread. We borrow something from somebody else and it may not be the thing they wanted us to borrow, maybe something else. So I was really lucky when I was young. I mentioned Leslie and Jamie, my first agency, Paul Felwick, who was sort of planning guru in advertising land was another one. He was quite, he's super smart and he, it really intimidated me, but despite his, his loveliness that I've come to know since, Intimidated because he's so smart and really so precise. But he said to me once, you know, look, if you want to argue with the researchers and the marketers that you're dealing with about how they think things work, then you need to know their stuff better than they do. So go and read about it. Go and study it. Mm-hmm. And that sort of encouraged the worst part of my geeky self, which is, you know, goff and books. Because <laughs> it was mostly books at the time. So that mm-hmm. was that. Adam Morgan was a brilliant guy to work for because he just had this thing about believing in you and trusting your ways of doing things, which were the mm. same as him, so that he was brilliant. But more, more recently, I've learned from some amazing people. Like, you know, I bumped into the other day a retired market researcher who was probably the most important intellectual influence on the stuff that I do, Wendy Gordon, who's a South African-British um, researcher who's, who's now retired. So she was just amazing. She was one of the most important people in shaping how, how people in communications now think about how communication works. Right. brands and stuff she wrote in a seminal piece called the 20th 21st century consumer which prompted me to write herd because she wrote the 21st century consumer and as well you've done the consumer bit you've decided that people aren't consumers and they're really interesting informed by all this behavioral science but what about the the bit what if it's more than one 
because yeah. I was at the time working with lots of lots of different cultures, and they, uh, you know, African cultures and Latin cultures and Asian cultures, and almost nobody sees human beings as the right the, the proper granulation level of granulation to study human beings as the individual. Almost everyone else sees human beings as a social thing and connected with each other. Mm-hmm. And the connections, the interactions between people is where the juice is. And that led me off to do herd and all that stuff that um, that has been so advantageous to me professionally since then. And I was I was going to actually ask, because I'm I'm kind of keen to understand the chronology of when did you start writing? Were you still at Ogilvy when you were writing, or had you sort of you know, tell me more, and I okay. want to know where Herdmeister comes from okay. as well. Great. Okay, so I started writing long before that. I started writing when I was uh, in the early nineties, and I was mm. doing stuff. I've always taken a great interest in young talent and helping the industry grow. So I did a lot of training for the account planning group and the IPA and so on. And I then got offered a chance to have my opinion about things because I've stood up and said. And I did this um, quite a bit, particularly um, with the US account planning community. I found myself on stage because the bloke from Disney couldn't make the conference in front of 1,200 American advertising executives. And I'd done, you know, I was was in Miami, so it's not so bad. And I'd done my workshop twice and had been packed to the rafters, which was great. And I stood up and did this thing called The Death of Marketing which led to the book called Welcome to the Creative Age. And I was so hungover because I'd been out the night before with everyone celebrating. You know, I wasn't asked till I was four tequilas in. So, you know. Who, who knows That's what probably the best time to ask someone. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, I will. Of course I will. But that was my, uh, that was the platform. So that must have been about 94. And that led to me getting that book. I wrote a, a research paper for it, a research industry paper, and then turned that into a book while I was at St. Luke's. And then a host of articles came from there. So I started writing articles. And some people write books by going, here's my pitch. Now let me go and research it. And uh, But sign up the book now. And I work the other way, which is basically I'm always collecting new material and thinking about and testing things out and seeing what seems to be important to people, what the big questions people have, how do they frame them, and how does this particular explanation of a complex thing serve and what other evidence might we bring to it that makes sense to people. So um, I'm always trying out material now. So this conversation could, in fact, turn into a chapter in the book. Or is you look forward to it. There you go. <laughs> um, and I'm, so well, I'm working right now on a book, um, and I'm nearing the phase of start writing fully. Yeah. I did heard when I left Ogilvy, because I've been, again, I'd written papers, written articles, and won prizes, hurrah, for the articles I was writing. Um, much the annoyance of people in Ogilvy because, again, they were obsessed by the individual thing, the one-to-one communication. And I was saying, actually, human beings are by nature social and we Mm. need to think about the the social elements. See what I did there? Thank you. (laughs) Humanity and work much more with that. So I had, you know, I, I parted ways with Ogilvy and I was working on what the book that became Heard and, um, you know, they told me they told me that, look, this social thing is all right for young people, for stupid people, for foreigners and like non-Americans. Maybe those Italians get a bit overexcited. Maybe it works for them. And But, you know, I, I was so convinced that human beings are like that because everyone I work with, apart from the Americans and the, the Brits, <laughs> saw human beings differently. There's a lot of good academics that mm. wasn't surface at all because of our cultural filters in the industry. 
And I was in the middle of writing this and it was very hot summer and I got called by a mate in the state saying, will you come and do a speech, a keynote speech at the AMA Consumer Conference in the States? I was like, well, okay, that'd be fine. I'll do that. Um, you have to pay the airfares and all of that. And they said, yeah, yeah. So will you do about the thing you're working on? I said, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then next thing I get the admin people from the conference on my back going, you need to fill this form in because it's always a form, isn't there? Fill the yeah. form in. There's a field here which says job title. I don't have a job title because I don't have a job. You have to do it. Otherwise, we can't can't invite you. You've got to have a job title. So oh, I don't know. The book's going to be called Herd. I suppose it's called the company Herd as well, if there's going to be a company. And I'm the Herd Meister, just because, you know, head of Herd sounds terrible or Herd leader sounds equal. <laughs> and it just sort of self-deprecating kind of it's slightly, slightly gothic, but also slightly Mary Poppins. <laughs> I love it. And it's just stuck. It's stuck, yeah. yeah. What you were saying about you're constantly researching, I'm curious to know about, you know, this this time during the pandemic, whether it's it's taking you down some different sort of uh, rabbit holes with, with your research, you know, seeing how people's brains have changed. I mean, I, I can't sort of say with any authority that people's brains have changed, but talking to other people, and I know you're sort of, you, you cover a lot around neuroscience. Has has it taken you down some interesting rabbit holes? This last 15 months or so has been really interesting. It's like one big social science experiment, mm. deprivation experiment, where you take away the important thing for people and see what happens. It's like mm. taking away sugar from your diet yeah. or like one of those yeah, nutritional dietary experiments. And what we've what we've realised is how important it is to be with other people and the interaction with other people on a high level, sort of important stuff, significant stuff, but also unimportant stuff. Mm. The fact that we haven't been able to work together face-to-face has meant we've had to, you know, we've had to find ways to compensate for the inability to read each other's body language, which tells us so much more than what people say. I don't know if you, if you sit in a meeting, in a, in a Zoom meeting or whatever, and it is, as someone said to me yesterday, it's a bit like the Muppet Show, yeah. where none of the participants seems to know what anyone else is doing. <laughs> like they're all looking at the camera like. So that's one, type, one thing that we've really learned. I think another thing we've really learned is how easy it is for things to spread, ideas, behaviours, mm-hmm. and how individual perspectives within a network of humans doesn't reflect the activity that's going on at the top. Mm. I think that's a really interesting, interesting thing that we we need to ponder a bit more. It's almost like the individual organisation within a network, their account is likely not to be that of a reliable witness mm. to what's actually going on. Network level effects are very different from the, how it's experienced within the network. And we somehow need to need to close that gap. It's not something that I've not thought about before, but it's become really clear to me. You know, when people talk about, for example, oh, I don't know anyone who's died. Well, I do. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't affect, you know, it doesn't affect normal people. Well, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So different experiences are very different. Individual experiences or local experiences, if you like, are different from the, the higher level network experience. And I think that's a really important thing we need to think about when we we even just ask people about their, you know, we, we go, let's say we go back to normal. We say, so how does it feel for you in this kind of world that we design an intervention to make that individual feel better? Well, it's, that's only part of the, part of the question. We have to look much more about what are the network effects that, uh, that we like to see. And I think we have to go back to doing things like, to be honest, about understanding network structures and network typologies. Because mm. um, I think we all got a bit bored of that when social listening became something that was offered by, any old market research company 
Yeah. The, the knowledge of how networks work is a really big deal. It was fascinating to read an article this morning around uh, the spread of misinformation as well and how it, it came down to that the majority of misinformation around COVID and vaccines is down to 12 people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I just found that. It just, it just blew my mind. And, and part- so, so here's the thing that we, that we learned from the... I, I, I didn't mention them, someone who's influenced me greatly is um, Alex Bentley, Professor Alex Bentley, who I did a book with called um, I'll Have What She's Having. Mm. And it's about how, uh, how to understand the way that people are choosing what they do, think, believe, and so on, and how things spread through populations. Alex pointed out that very often it seems in retrospect that there, that certain people were really important in the spread of idea, behaviour, disease, X. If you rerun the model, you'd find another different set of people mm. also being important or and those would drop out. It's sort of it's sort of chance that somebody becomes a really important distributor of that stuff. But sometimes it's not. Mm. And we need to sort of you know, with the rows about influencer marketing going on, particularly at the, you know, in the last six months, we need to be really clear that some of it mm-hmm. is really chance. And I think adjust the way we pay those influencers as well. Yeah, A lot of it is really chance. Nothing to do with you being special or a, nub, a, a, a node in the network, which, which is more important than another node. So you wrote, I'll have what she's having, and I think also creative superpowers with uh, collaborating with other people, but you've written other books on your own. So how do the two compare? And do you have a preference? Well, see, I always work with other people anyway. And I learn as much from other people's practice, whether they're clients or colleagues, Mm -hmm. as from what I bring to the table that they might learn from. So, um, you know, I've worked for a lot with the fabulous John Wilkshire of Smithery recently and Julie Dolman is its experience, our client. I've learned so much from them. And the ideas that come out are somehow ours rather than mine. Mm-hmm. And that's easier when I then get to control the narrative of the book or when there's just one person you're writing with. When you're doing a collection of stuff, it's quite hard. And we've done a couple of those over the years. Um yeah, the hard parts of superpowers, creative superpowers, was done by Daniele Fiandaka. But even so, trying to corral lots of different moving parts mm-hmm. and creating a coherent piece means that you have to interact together differently. You also have to learn to trust each other quite a bit yeah. and go, you know what, you're going to make decisions on this that wouldn't be exactly the same as mine, and that's okay. But it's the same with any teamwork stuff. You know, you have to let go of control somehow at some point. Otherwise, people won't want to do the job. Yeah, absolutely. Looking back, you know, spanning your 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 career, what are you proud of? What are you most proud of so far? I thought about this long and hard, and it occurred to me this morning that uh, I, I did this thing for uh, the 30th birthday of account planning, this strategy discipline in creative agencies that the UK invented um, in the late 60s. It was the 30th birthday, and it was an account planning group annual awards thing, and I was I was chair of the, the whole thing and uh, of the the awards and. I put a 60-foot picture of my mum on screen. That's just brilliant. <laughs> and to show that, that show, make a joke and tease some of the people who'd, who submitted papers, basically suggesting that their mum was their greatest strategic insight generator. So that was one of the things. See my mum 60-foot high because I'm very proud of her. <laughs> but then also I got called. I was on one of those early morning flights out of JFK in... I think it must have been 2000, yeah, it was 2010. 2010 election was going on. And there was a piece in The Guardian, which books influenced the thinking of the, the campaign leaders? 
and Heard was number two, both for Labour and the Tories. Wow, oh my God, just, that's brilliant. I thought, I thought that's brilliant, but it's also, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry. They can, you know, you don't have to do what's followed in the book and, and well, maybe you should do, I don't know. I'm really sorry. Whatever happened, whatever influence I had on that election, I'm really sorry. <laughs> well, you, you um, cancelled it out on either side, really. By <laughs> they well, I think that's right. So I made no difference. That's good. <laughs> um, the, thing, the, thing, the thing that I'm most proud about, really, to be honest, is still to be in the game. In that I'm still able to work with really interesting people and do mm-hmm. new things, and feel as excited um, as I was at the beginning of this. And it, I, there's a great Tom Stoppard line from. Um, one of his uh, one of his plays, that one that was about complexity theory, he says, "Oh, to be at the beginning again, knowing almost nothing." Mm-hmm. And for some people, there's a terror of the blank page, the blank screen. Yeah. I just think it's the most exciting thing to be at the beginning of another project and go, "Wow, wonder what this will turn out like." Mm-hmm. And of course, you feel anxious, but you go, "This could be amazing." Goodness knows where we'll end up. So I'm really feel really blessed to be in that place still. And not holding on to some, you know, some success that I did, some Benson and Hedges ad I shot in the 1970s. <laughs> oh, which one was it with the gold pyramids? <laughs> <laughs> the one with the lizard you're thinking of, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, at the social element, obviously, we're obsessed about helping brands have genuine human connections with with their consumers. Who would you say is doing a, a, a good job of it? Of, of you know, which brands are showing their human side at the moment? I'm going to just talk about one really good one, mm. and but they did it at the beginning of the of the uh, crisis, and that's Yum Corporation, which is Pizza Hut and yes. KFC and so on, and they did an amazing thing with the Chinese operation, who in Wuhan they basically let they didn't know what to do when the the pandemic broke, and Wuhan was clearly the centre of it all. But then they they encouraged the local management to do what they felt was the next right thing. And the next right thing was to support all the emergency workers, support the families of the people working in the business. And so they, they, you know, found some way of protecting them health-wise, but just delivered stuff to people for free and just kept that business Mm. going. I mean, it wasn't that it was making any money, because clearly it wasn't going to make any Mm. money, but it was the next right thing to Mm. do. And I think that's a really good question to ask any business. What's the next right thing to do? Not what benefits us, not simply what benefits the shareholders or benefits our customers. What's the right thing to do next? I've stolen that from Wilshire, by the way. It's one of his process questions. But I, th- I think more broadly, um, what Ken Munch and the, um, the guys at Yum did in China were amazing. Amazing. Yeah. It's something that is often picked up in crisis management as well of sort of setting your north star of yeah. what do you want to be known for in the future what how do you want to come out of this crisis and a lot of it is is about doing the right thing and you know it's often goes back to our values as well so yeah that's really I powerful. think that's right so so interesting one of the things I've been working on in lockdown is is my next book about about time travel how we can think about time differently and this idea of doing stuff now we're thinking about what tomorrow might be like and the day after is I think really interesting. And why and, and looking backwards and go, what do we really come from? Yeah. What really matters to us. You know, if you think about it, for example, the insurance industry started as a mutual aid. We support each other. We put money into a pot together so that we can help whichever of us needs it when when they need mm-hmm. it. 
that's not what the insurance industry is. Yeah. So there's a huge sort of a huge opportunity to, to reinvent that. Thinking about the future, there's a, a bag of bones in the British Museum, which comes from a Central American pre-European invasion tribe. And they used to carry this bag of bones of ancestors, like, like many cultures around the world have, uh, respecting the ancestors, but bring them to any significant meeting they had. Because at that meeting, it reminded each of those in the meeting that they would one day also be bones. Wow. And also that they, and they will be gone one day. And so you have to make decisions for the long term. Mm. You have to make, you have to act. The right thing, the right thing is not just the right thing for now. It's the right thing for the next generation. It's a marvellous book called good, The Good Ancestor, which is written by a, 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 an American philosopher. Just lovely. We have to start thurking about those things, not in a sort of prurient save the planet and it's our own yoga kind of way, but we have to start thinking what happens after we're gone mm. because otherwise we'll just make all the wrong short term decisions and we'll end up in the same mess as we are in now, and we won't address any of those bigger things i look f- I look forward to that one i'm I'm remembering a time that I had a conversation with a with an uber driver because talking about time travel, I was thinking that maybe. We could invent an app where you could you, you know you can sort of tell you know where traffic is and and how delayed you're going to be if you make a different decision that your app would track whether you would have got there faster if you'd stuck to your route or kind of gone with the new route and he just couldn't understand why I would be interested in that at all and I was like but I just want to know that the decisions you make affect the course of you know of, of your life I mean albeit in just a small taxi ride but Yeah, he, he didn't agree with me so that's that I think that's great and I think that's I would be really interested in that so if, when you start hacking it together yourself let me know I, I'll, I'll be a beta user <laughs> I think the um, I think that idea of multiple futures is a really interesting thing and that's part of the stuff that I'm looking at we tend to think about the future as the but it's not yeah it's lots of things that could happen and um, the more we take the multiple view, The better decisions we make now and I don't mean that we get it right now but it means we're prepared now for lots of things that might come up mm. you know I, I wrote a piece for um, tortoise um, magazine online about the similarities between UK government's covid preparations and on the other hand the challenger disaster because it's strange it was 35 weeks 35 years since the COVID, the challenger disaster mm. that the covid thing hit in both cases we know because there was a really big inquest into government sponsored inquest into the challenger disaster in both cases everyone knew it was going to happen at some point mm-hmm. the probability was really high in the challengers case seven out of 11 challengers launched had the same critical fault seven out of 11 wow. that's an awfully high chance and indeed there were conference calls the day before challenger launched that said don't do this the conditions are all wrong we know it's going to explode and It had gone up through the organization come back down yeah yeah but but you know could maybe tweak that look everyone knew it. similarly the UK is exactly the same and I, you know I've regard covid we actually did at least two preparatory exercises planning for what we needed to do mm. and then we decided oh, well that's quite hard mm. it's quite hard to make those preparations and you have to constantly make preparations it's a bit like saying well we have to have excess resource available just in case this happens yeah and if we don't need it then we can redeploy it in some mm-hmm. way but we'll still need to plan for having that excess resource rather than being hyper efficient 
because the world is essentially unknowable and we can't possibly we can't possibly get it right all of the time so we have to plan for different scenarios and the more we plan for and get prepared for the better i mean i'm i i love thinking about the future but i'm less interested in you know in whether or not each of us is going to have a jet propelled vehicle that will take us from from north london to to the center or that in fact that that we can go up to a spaceship i really don't i'm really not interested in that stuff what i am interested in is so what's going to happen relatively quickly Mm. and how can we prepare for that those scenarios we uh, i did a really big project with um merck the pharmaceutical company Mm -hmm. um over the last couple of years and uh my wonderful client lisa coutard is just wonderful wonderful lady she and i were both we kept finding things that we'd predicted in the scenario many scenarios we were generating that then happened there was one about a scenario that was based on mind reading, which seems really un- unlikely, mm. right? Mind reading becomes technically possible and Facebook go all in. As we were running the workshop together with the team to explore this, guess what? Facebook announced they bought a mind reading company. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when they say mind reading, they probably just meant um, just an, another machine learning thing. Mm. Uh, but, you know, that's not... That, that's that's not the point. The point is that the, that these things which seem really extreme can happen to a certain extent, and they're already here. And when you you guys thinking about crisis management, you must see that you have to allow for things ahead of time before they happen. I want to pull that out of crisis management, put it into general strategy yeah. thinking, in yeah, business and in marketing, so that instead of having the plan, we have we get prepared for the things that could stop us. I love that. I love that. Honestly, I could spend all day just sort of talking to you about that, but I want to actually get your opinion on the industry as a whole, if you don't mind, actually, because what changes would you like to see in the industry that we still need to make? Look, I'm going to put aside the completely unrepresentative population of the industry. Mm -hmm. It's both in gender, gender identity, in race, and let's not forget age. That's a really big deal. There's a lot of people who are disposed of unnecessarily could so that's a that's a thing there's the harassment both bullying and sexual harassment uh, and i think those things we just there's no excuse yeah I, I can't remember how it was for me to go oh yeah he's a bit like that or she's a it, uh, just you just watch out for them that is just unacceptable mm. just unacceptable and we've got to just grow up and get out of that this idea of of the marketing and creative industries being just like wild west and anything it's just wrong it's just wrong and it's it's inhuman as well so that aside i think there's still one really big thing that i would like us to do is i'd like us to remember that marketing is not about communications every marketing case study you ever see is is judged on the basis of how was the ad you go well that's just not the point Mm -hmm. it really isn't the point and it's not that ads are becoming less important. Ads are still, you know, still, particularly video and television ads are still very important. But that's not marketing. Marketing is changing the organisation so that it identifies and satisfies its customers' needs better. Better than they were being satisfied by the company before and better than others people do. What really matters to people? That's the conversations we should be having. Yeah. And how have you made, that, made things better for those people? And that means you've got to get back into back into that messy world of, of negotiating with product people, with, with distribution and logistics people, with the finance people. How can we reframe, for example, how finance evaluates the performance of the business? 
so that it's more about uh, the customer gets a better go. There's this there's this terrible moment in the early tw- early two thousands when uh, these sort of the magic circle of DAO leaders got together and decided it was really hard to balance out the needs of stakeholders, financial stakeholders, and uh, and management and local communities and employees. So we're just going to not do that anymore. We're just going to focus on the financial shareholders. That's the only thing mm-hmm. we care about. And ourselves. And that's got to stop. We've got to move back into starting to realise that we operate in ecosystems yeah. and those ecosystems include our people and the people that our people touch and the people beyond that and the, the people beyond our country, beyond our shores, whether they're in our supply chain or not, they will be affected by what we do. If you look at how the amount of plastic that's being distributed through our oceans now, whether it's from face masks or whether it's from um, the uh, COVID tests, those test kits, huge amount of plastic. Mm. Let's let's stop thinking about simply what happens here right now that we we think we can be accountable for. You've got to you've got to find a way to make that stuff not damage the rest of the world. Mm. And if we can sort out all the inequalities as well at the same time, let's do that well, too. I think you don't. I, I don't think there's a choice, right? I know. I you can't I agree. carry on having. I mean, I can say this because you know I'm towards the end of my career and I'm a white middle class bloke. I've had a really easy run of things by comparison. I mean, I haven't had any obvious leg ups mm. because of the people I know, but that's not the point. I've had a really easy time. Mm. I'm supremely privileged. Most people who are in the industry aren't aren't having who are coming into the industry aren't having. There are some signs from the industry's um, latest data which suggests that that some women and some ethnicities are improving at the lower levels of pay, but it's still very very poor and male culture still dominates i'm just so fed up of that can i can i say the word dick yes absolutely the the dicks being slung out onto the table and the machismo of i'm just go away yeah go away i don't care what gender you are and i don't care what whether you have a penis or not just stop metaphorically putting it on the table and showing how big and clever you are i'm not interested yeah it gets no one anywhere and it just reduces everyone else's ability to contribute Sorry, I've sold my gender down the down the. Here, <laughs> here for that. Really, really important piece about the industry needs needs the culture of the industry needs to be much less about men. Yeah. Having said that, you know, on, on my uh, behind my desk, I've got a, a print original pro- poster from Saturday Night Sunday Morning, which was a classic male narrative um, in you know of sixties kitchen sink filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But um, and I'm a bloke, but. It's got to change. Yeah. It's just got to stop. And it does change with allies as well. So, yeah. Totally, totally. But, you know, we have to find new ways of, and, you know, that we we all use, we are all products of cultures that we have grown up in. And the received wisdom from those ideas is is visible in our behaviours and our refusal to act at times. And we just have to, we just have to, be aware of that stuff and find new ways of doing it. And it may not be that there's an obvious alternative to lying around. So we have to work together and try some stuff and it may not work yeah. and that's okay, but we need to move in that direction. And it's just so, so tedious to see, uh, see another mantle banging on about diversity. Shut up. <laughs> another mantle anyway. <laughs> boring, boring, boring. Uh, panels, by the way, I'm not too keen on, you know, cause there's no real conversation has had, but, but manholes to stop it. Or a boardroom full of men. We've got a woman, it's fine. And we also got one of them gay fellas. So there we are, we're sorted. Yeah. 
It's just nonsense, isn't it? Oh, it just drives me insane. There's a whole kind of um, bingo card doing the rounds of the excuses that are given for not putting uh, a woman on on the uh, on a panel, for example, of just like oh, we asked them all and they couldn't do it. Or, right. No, all no the one's women. In it. All, <laughs> yes, we asked all the women. They couldn't. It's one of <laughs> all the women. That's good. That's good. It's funny how you track them all down. Then to I ask know. Them. Hats They're off. Hats actually off. Actually, quite busy running the world. <laughs> Right, we're going to move on now to the part of the podcast where we get a little bit more personal, if you don't mind. Um, So first of all, how do you like to spend your downtime? Do you have any guilty pleasures we should know about? Uh, I have some guilty and and some I don't feel at all guilty about. So so I still play in a ska band. So I'm still the front man and I have the largest suit in Christendom as a result. I go fly fishing a lot. I love that. It's one of my things. And uh, despite the it's very the culture surrounding it's very male mm. and very hierarchical uh, having said that it's just lovely and i just i just love being on the water and i've been taking my dog recently and she's only once um gone into the into the uh, water that's very restrained um, oh, well, unsurprising surprising given <laughs> her you know uh what else do i do? I, well, I, I i you know i've i've got a thing about trees and greenery and mm. i don't know about you but i was saved last year the start of lockdown by having green spaces available mm. to me to walk in and I had the excuse of a dog as well um but trees and woodlands are just so important wherever I go in the world it's still a mm-hmm. constant I, I don't know what it is but it just transforms how I feel about things it's sort of grounding and peaceful exactly and, yeah exactly but even if it's a jungle mm-hmm. or I remember um last time I was in New Zealand went uh went to the the mountains on the North Island and went fishing for a weekend. It was just glorious, just glorious. So beautiful being surrounded by trees. Even even in the New Zealand winter, it was just mm-hmm. fantastic. And if you could choose, would you be a super villain or a superhero? And what powers would you have? Uh, I'm not sure that I want to be either, actually, um, because I don't think it's a solo act. I think that what we try and do in our lives generally is always with others and, you know, Okay, I'll be a bit wanky about this to, to, just for a moment. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the African notion of Ubuntu. Tutu and Mandela used mm-hmm. it to try and reunite South Africa and, and post uh, post his release from, from prison. It's a very common idea, and similar ideas are, are shared across other cultures in um, Scandinavia and so on. The idea is basically that you, I am who I am because of you. And I am, not just because I know you, but because you exist and we somehow interact my well-being my health my success is dependent on yours that mutuality is at the heart of how i really am i mean it doesn't mean i like to have my ego i don't like my ego stroke i don't like to be told that i'm brilliant so if you feel like doing that that would be great you're amazing but, <laughs> but you know superheroes and supervillains you know i could be a supervillain i was once called the market researchers in uh, market research industries public enemy number one hurrah <laughs> I, I think it was actually I it was after I think I did this um I was constantly challenging them with what behavioral science contemporary behavior and cognitive science was saying about how people are and saying surveys and focus groups aren't necessarily the way to understand things how people really are because you're using the wrong framework um and I'd stood on stage at the Barbican at their annual conference and I spent five whole minutes standing there just standing there Oh my God. Standing there, checking my watch, standing there, 
looking around the room and the waves of titters and and nervous giggles went around the room and then some coughing and shuffling of feet and eventually said how long how long will we have to wait until you grasp how people really are and put that map to work how long I didn't have to say much more because they all went (laughs) then I became public enemy number one but um, so I could be a, a villain like that, but I'd rather and I'd rather be part of a group of people. So maybe it's um, a symbol time collaboration so, man. Rather, <laughs> exactly, collaboration <laughs> man. No, but I'd rather be with other people who are also because I'm my, my skills are in, I'm very aware, aware of my limited skills, and I know that collaboration always produces the most interesting stuff. And so I'd rather be part of a team like the Avengers or. Mm-hmm something like that, who work together to solve things. And, yeah, that's how I'd rather be. I'd be a part, part of a team of superheroes. If I had a superpower, you're going to ask me, right? Though, even though my superpower is making complex things simple and usable. I make experiences, I design tools, processes, exercises, conferences, whatever, books to make the stuff that, that really matters accessible and usable by people rather than something that makes them feel intimidated or dumb because feeling dumb is never going to get you bought. Right. And if you weren't doing what you do now, what's your secret alternative career choice? Well, I'm afraid it would be in the scar band. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to say I'd be teaching one of the two scar band or teach. I do teach a lot of teaching and mentoring anyway, but, um, the Scar Band is such a source of joy mm-hmm. and we've been playing together for three decades now and all of us play other music and all of us listen to other music and all of us love other music, but there's nothing like the shuffling beat of that Jamaican sound from the, from the mid-60s that brings smile to yeah. everybody. And that's, you know, when we perform, I guess this tells you something about me, when we perform, we always say how what kind of show are we going to create for people? How can we make people feel different? How can we help them enjoy it more? Rather than how can we show off the amazing guitar skills? Yeah. Or, yeah. or how rigid the drummer is in his inability to play different rhythms. But that's something else. <laughs> I hope the drummer's listening. <laughs> or no, maybe not. Listening. No, he's, he's, he's busy. He's busy. <laughs> if we could give you an extra hour each day, how would you spend it? Okay, so one of my big things in the world is languages. Mm-hmm. I happen to be really lucky, brought up in a family which is multilingual, and being exposed to multi-languages, multicultures, and it's made me the person that I am, um, and being quite humble about whatever culture I have and I've inherited. And languages are a, an amazing window in on that. So my family are all very Welsh, um, but I couldn't speak a word of Welsh um, until lockdown started, and I've been duolingoing away and I'm now doing quite well and um, so much so that I've, I've left my father far behind because he doesn't speak very much Welsh either so and I think that's what I do I, there are so many things that I, I feel embarrassed when you go to Spain or to yeah. the Spanish Latin and I can't I can go you know go as far as hello how are you and I would like two of those please and the taxi too please and airport, is it that? Is that the Italian word or the Spanish word? Mm-hmm. I'd, I feel embarrassed then. So, and I do it everywhere in the world I go, whether it's into, into Africa or Latin America or Europe. I'd much, I really want to understand more about how people think because mm-hmm. language is one of those ways that reveals that. And much as, you know, my friend Rory is always being rude about the French, 
speaking French helps you understand the cultural assumptions that France right. has, that people have, the good and the bad. Because <laughs> they're not, no better than us, they're just humans. But that's what I do, I learn another language. Brilliant. And how would your friends describe you? And how would you like them to describe you? Um, they'd probably say I'm late. Um, <laughs> I'm very lucky to have some amazing people in my life. And uh, I've had a pers- personally a very hard time in the last few years losing my, my lovely wife. But I, I advice to anyone, um, just surround yourself with alpha women. Right. It's always the best. And I'm just really lucky to have them. And I, how do they see me? I think they see me as warm and human and funny and a bit geeky. I think that'd be about right tomorrow. I, I was going to, yes, incredibly clever, thoughtful, and you are Mr. Collaboration as well. But, yeah, you are just one of the kindest, loveliest men I know. Oh, can I write that down? That's <laughs> brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency. Thank you.